Well, we've been talking for the past several weeks about God's deliverance of his people from the land of Egypt. And we've learned about how Egypt was both a literal situation for them. They were under the thumb of a foreign power. But it was, in a larger sense, symbolic of a spiritual truth that people everywhere are enslaved to false gods. And for God to bring salvation to his people, he not only has to geographically get his people out from under the thumb of that tyrant, but he has to get the fingers of those false gods off of the hearts of his people. And so he begins this process of deliverance while they're still in Egypt. And so the people of God experienced the first three plagues to learn that the gods in whom they've been placing their trust can avail them not. God is beginning to wean his people off of Egypt. Deliverance is just about just as much about getting us away from the penalties of sin as it is loosening the power of sin in our lives. We are prone to running after. We look back and we see all the fun and the prosperity that the world promises and provides, and we miss it. We sometimes think we are missing out. And so God, in his goodness, shows us in this episode that all that stuff is illusory. It's, it's fake. It's smoke and mirrors. And so God brings his people out with a strong hand, showing once and for all that all the gods of this age, the gods of the culture in which you reside, all of them are meaningless. None of them can deliver. Only he can. Now the book of Exodus is where God really reveals himself. There is no book in the Old Testament that reveals as much about God and who he is and how he operates as does the book of Exodus. Exodus is like the Old Testament equivalent of Romans. Okay? It is full of theology. It is Exodus where God reveals what his covenant name entails. It is Exodus where God reveals what relationship with him looks like. It is Exodus where God reveals what being in covenant with him is like. It is in Exodus where we learn about salvation. It is in Exodus that we see the total of theology fleshed out for us. And so even in these first chapters, we have had a, a, an amazing theology course. God has shown us a number of things. He's shown us what it looks like for him to be sovereign over his creation. He's challenged our prideful human notions of autonomy when he shows that the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh, is, is but a pawn in his hand. And he turns Pharaoh whichever way he wants. And we think we're autonomous beings going through life in charge, captains of our ship. God is in charge. He cannot be successfully resisted. Now the enemies of the Lord need to hear that and shudder. Their rebellions, their ravings will come to an end. He cannot be thwarted. And God's people should be comforted by that knowledge. 
Because God works his sovereignty for his glory and your good. And so we can be sure that Jesus' words in John 10 are true. It is precisely because he's in charge of everything that we can be sure that no one can snatch us out of his hand. So if he has saved you, if he has called you, if he is guiding you, you can be sure that you are safe. But not only do we learn that God is sovereign in terms of in charge of everything and nothing can happen outside of his scope of power, we learn about God's sovereign choice in election. How he chooses the people of Israel out of all the nations of the earth. Not because they had it coming. Not because they're so great. Not because they're so wise. Not because they're so learned. But simply by his sovereign mercy. And that's what you and I are also the beneficiaries of. His sovereign mercy. This is what Paul labors again and again to drive home. That we are not saved because of some inherent goodness in us. You aren't so clever. You aren't so, so, so accomplished that God looks at you and thinks, man, i got to save that guy. We are saved by his mercy. And so there's no room for anything from us but rejoicing. We see in the Passover event, the sheer fact that Israel had to sacrifice something. We see the wages of sin, the justice of God. When God shows up in justice, he doesn't just overlook. For those of you who weren't here last week, we pointed out that in plagues 4 through 9, the people of Israel were simply exempt. They didn't have to do anything. They just didn't experience the negative effects of those plagues. But in plague 10, the Passover, all of a sudden, in order to not get the effects of that plague felt on them, they had to do something. They had to sacrifice a lamb. Something had to die. And the reason was because God was showing up in judgment for sin. So the wages of sin is death. When God shows up in judgment... The only just penalty is death. But we also learn of the notion of substitution. That God was willing to accept a substitute. And so in this case it was a lamb. The lamb served as a substitute and as they would take its blood and put it on their doorposts and the doorframe, God would see that. That the blood of the lamb signified that instead of their son dying, this lamb had, and God was pleased to accept it. This also points to the notion of propitiation. That's a New Testament fancy theology word. It refers to the wrath of God being satisfied. And so he's no longer angry. And so the angel of the Lord, the destroyer, would show up at these homes. Verses 13 and 23 of chapter 12 describe it. The angel of the Lord would show up and he would see the blood on the door and he wouldn't go in. He was satisfied. So the notion of propitiation, that God is angry at our sin and we must satisfy We learn of the communion of saints as we've already talked about today. 
that this was not just an individual matter. They had to gather in households. And if your house was too small for a, for a lamb, you had to get together with another household. Everybody, lottie dotty, everybody had to participate. No, I don't like lamb. No, I can't eat this. I'm on a diet. No, I'm sick. I can't. Everybody. Your life depended on it. Because we're a covenant community. And our lives are bound up together. That's why Paul can write about the body. My finger and my toes and my ears and my nose, they're all related to me. And everything's important. And you are. Now in this passage, chapter 13, verses 1 to 16, we add an extra layer, another layer to our understanding of theology with the concept of redemption. The Bible is chocked full of language related to the notion of salvation. Okay? Now the word saved or salvation is in the Bible, and we are oftentimes tempted to think in terms of salvation as being getting rescued from danger, which th th that's true. That's a meaning of salvation. If, if, I'm, if someone is stranded on the side of the road and a rainstorm is coming and you show up and say, here, hop in, I'll give you a ride, you've saved them from the storm. And that is used. Jesus has rescued us from danger. But there's all like an onion with multiple layers. There's all sorts of great truths. And so here we're introduced to the concept of redemption and of Jesus as our Redeemer. Redemption is an economic term. It speaks of salvation as an economic transaction where there's the transference of ownership from one to another after the payment of a price. Bought and sold in one sense. It's used in the Bible repeatedly to refer to the release of a POW. Armies would go fight wars against each other. People would get captured. And then in order to secure the release of your captured soldiers, you'd have to pay the other king a ransom, the fee. And then he would set your people free. Now, the notion that we have been redeemed underscores the fact that something had to get paid. A price had to get paid we didn't just get let go. Something had to happen for, to secure our release. And what God wants his people to do is remember that they were redeemed. When God spared them, it was because some price had been paid. And it was the price of the firstborn of Egypt. God let them go free and took the firstborn of Egypt. The people of Egypt suffered and the people of Israel were released. A great exchange. Now, we remember and we honor the things that are important to us. And one of the realities in the Bible is that remembering is meant to be a volitional activity. It's a whole person activity. Oftentimes we think of remember as simply internal or conceptual. You know, the way you might sit there right now, and if I ask you to remember what you did last 
uh, last summer. You might think about that for a little bit. But remembering in our mind is primarily simply cognitive. Remembering in the Bible is expressive. Remembering means to consider something and in light of it to live a certain way. And the problem for the people of God repeatedly is they forget where they come from. They forget who they are. They forget whose they are. And they forget what they were saved for. We continually forget. And so the major thrust of this passage, as you can see, is the passing on, the relaying of these events to future generations. We have got to pass on the story. Or else someone else's story will get passed on. That's the repeated problem in the era of the judges, in the era of the kings, in the era of the post-exilic. That they come back, and instead of passing on the narrative of what God has done, and what this entails, and, and what God has promised, and the whole nine yards, they're busy learning the story of the Canaanites. Learning the values, learning the priorities of the nations around them. Is it any wonder that in our own day, upwards of 80% of all youth leave the church and don't come back? Have they learned our story? Or have we spent the first 18 years of their lives primarily teaching them the story of the world? Whose story are we teaching them? And so God wants to set up reminders. Now, in, in, in legalistic fashion, uh, you see what happened. Um, God is figurative here. It says these remembrances will be as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. It, it's supposed to be a figurative idea that it's always in front of you. You never stop looking and thinking about it. But in legalistic manner, the Jews, by the time of Jesus, had turned these into physical things. Oh, we checked that block. No, look at what God is wanting you to do. Not wear a phylactery between your eyes. He's wanting you to remember the law, to think about it all the time, to talk about it all the time, to live as one of his people, to bear his name in a way that brings him glory. And so one of the great burdens that Moses has here, even before they've been given the law, which is still chapters away, they've still got a lot of ground to cover physically, geographically, before they get to Sinai and get the law, is, hey, while it's fresh on your mind, you've just experienced this a few hours ago, remember to tell your kids. Remember to pass it on. And sometimes the language is when they ask. When they ask, tell them, well, well, Moses, what happens if they don't ask? I guess I'm off the hook. If they don't ask, then I don't have to tell, right? No. In verse 8, Moses gets around that. There's no when they ask, it's just you shall tell them. Tell them. There is no one who at any point could be excused 
by saying, I didn't know. No, you're supposed to know. We are charged with passing along the heritage of our faith to our children. But we won't if it's not even important to us. Celebrate the victories of God throughout history. Share the high points and the low points of what God has done in redemptive history. Make it their own story. One of the things we do is engage in family worship. We talk, we talk about God a lot in our house. Okay? And I, and I want you to as well. Make God the central thing in your house. God's the, the, the good elephant in the room that you can't get around. As at least he should be. He should be there all the time. So one of the things we're, we do when we do devotions is we, our family worship is we read the Bible. Shocking. We don't read little books about the Bible. We read the Bible. And I tell you what, maybe it's because they're boys, but they love reading Kings. There's a lot of action in Kings. And some of you saw my face, the, the boys love reading about Jezebel getting what she had coming. God protects his people. And people who oppress the church and people who murder his people get punished. You serve a God who comes big for his people. With a mighty arm, he saves. Drive that truth home to your kids so that they will look to him as their rock. Now, this passage makes a big deal out of firstborns and flatbread. It's because firstborns and flatbread are great pictures of what God has done. God wants to fill his people's imaginations and senses with reminders of his goodness. Now, you know, one of the things about the Reformed tradition, myself included, is we don't like visible reminders. We, we, like, we, like, we just like the word. I should be able to tell you, and that's enough. And uh, I'm saying that sort of poking fun at myself too because God is a God who knows he's a master teacher. And he knows that people learn through object lessons and they learn through repetition. That's why they have to do it every year. The firstborns. The firstborns culturally were a big deal. With a firstborn, you knew that your line would continue. You knew that you had someone to take care of you in your old age. And so the firstborn had many privileges, many prerogatives. They were the ones who got the inheritance or the bulk of it. And now, some of you may read this and, and you don't understand because in verse 2 it says, whatever is the first thing out of the womb. But then it specifies Males, which, what is it? Well, it, it is males. And, and ladies, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, you, were, you didn't count as a firstborn. Firstborn were always the male. It didn't matter if, 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 if you had six older sisters, the first boy that was born, he's the firstborn. In terms of the inheritance, in terms of the one who needed redeemed. Now that's a big thing for us as Christians. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Ladies, you are considered in the New Testament sons of God. 
And the reason you're called a son of God is because in the culture of the day, only sons inherited. It's not that God does not like your femininity. He created you female. It's that God wants to drive home that you too share in the inheritance. But in the day, back in Moses' day, the males had to be redeemed. The males were the center of procreative power. Okay? And so the males had to be bought back. All the males of of sacrificable animals, the firstborn, had to be sacrificed to the Lord. As a reminder that the Lord slew the firstborn of Egypt and set his people free. Donkeys in verse 13. What's that about? Well, you may or may not know, but donkeys were an unclean animal. So they couldn't be sacrificed. But they were a valuable beast of burden. And so, even they had to be redeemed. And if you weren't willing to sacrifice a lamb for it, then you had to kill it. Not in a sacrificial way, but you lost possession of it. And I think it's interesting, and most commentators note, that he lists clean animals you sacrifice, donkey, which is unclean animal, you have to exchange for, you have to redeem it with the sacrifice of something else, and then people. As if to say, you're closer to an unclean animal than you are to one of these clean animals. And of course, that makes sense given our human depravity. We are all objects of uncleanness. Our hearts go astray at the slightest inclination. And something has to be done. So by redeeming the firstborn as a perpetual reminder that they were redeemed out of Egypt, they were saved at the expense of the Egyptian firstborn, it was a perpetual reminder of the salvation wrought by the Lord and of the salvation that they were still anticipating. So fast forward. Jesus is presented for redemption at the temple. Now, some of our Baptist brothers and sisters, they look at this passage as justification for their consecrating or dedicating of their children to the Lord, and that's really apples and oranges. Okay? Uh, what they're doing is dry baptism. This, this is people who are all in the covenant. They've been circumcised. This is saying your life is forfeit unless you redeem it. And they had to redeem a child. Okay? There was no, there was no, I don't want this kid anyway, go ahead and kill it. No. No. You had to redeem it. Okay, this isn't just a promise to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And it isn't all their children, it's just the firstborn. As a reminder of the firstborn of Egypt that were slain. Firstborn, firstborn, firstborn. All the time. You're doing it. Your brothers are doing it. Your sisters are doing it. Your cousins are doing it. Your neighbors are doing it. Everybody. Firstborn redeemed. Firstborn redeemed. Something is always being sacrificed on behalf of the firstborn. It's a perpetual reminder that the Lord has saved us. And then the flatbread, as we learned last week. The whole thing about yeast. We learn in in 1 Corinthians that, that it's a pointer to the influencing nature of sin. When, Jesus, when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8 says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival 
with the unleavened bread of righteousness, not with the old leavened bread of malice and envy. So the flat bread and the firstborn, they are reminders that we were saved from something for something, from a life of futility and sin to a life of consecration to the purposes of God. One of the things I think that Christians get a hard time wrapping their mind around is the fact that God has saved us for a purpose. We so often stress salvation as a free gift. And as a little heads up, the fact that we want to emphasize the free gift of it is evidenced by the inclusion of the word free because the word free is not in the Greek Bible. It's just gift. But we want to stress because we're consumers. We're Americans. We're a culture of consumers. And we want to, we want to stress, stress, stress that salvate, we want something for nothing. And so we stress, even in our translation of the Bible, that this costs nothing. It's free gift. It's not just a gift. It's a free gift. A gift is itself a free thing. Other is not a gift. But that's not good enough. So we say it's a free gift. So then, we, we really, after we've emphasized freeness, freeness, it costs you nothing, nothing, no strings attached, nothing, nothing, or else you won't want to take it. Then we, we stumble when we come to the Bible then and learn that God saved us for a purpose. When we learn from Paul that you were bought with a price, so you're not your own. Now, if I've just been filling someone's head with free gift, free gift, it costs you nothing, and then they hear, you were bought with a price, you were not your own, glorify God in your body, well, don't they feel that they, maybe they were given the old bait and switch? The point of salvation is transference of ownership. Martin Luther, in his book, Bondage of the Will, said it right, you're a donkey that's being ridden either by the devil or by God. Okay? There's no free agents floating around out there. You're either in bondage to the devil, doing his works, and payday will come someday. Now, that's an awesome sermon. Have you ever read that or heard that sermon? Payday someday? Oh, my goodness, that's an awesome sermon. Awesome. Go, look it up. Payday someday by R.G. Lee. Fantastic. Fantastic. Anyway, payday is someday, and you will reap what you've sown and if you're living in bondage, in submission to the devil, doing his works, you will get the wages. But if God redeems you and saves you and makes you his own and consecrates you for his purposes, and then you live a life by the Spirit, you reap the reward. It's a beautiful picture. But we were bought with a price. We were ransomed. Remember, Jesus came in, Math, in Mark 10, 45 to give his life as a ransom. He's the price that was paid so you could go free. And God makes you his own. So God has a real claim on us. And that's what this is reminding the people of all the time. I saved you. I have a claim on you. And I expect you to live as my people. It's a reminder of holiness. It's a reminder of his forgiveness all the time. And we must remind ourselves of that because we forget that we are to be holy. We forget that we've been forgiven. And we forget 
that God has a purpose for us. Something else that's pretty cool. The Bible goes out of its way to stress that Jesus is the firstborn. That does not mean the first thing created. Again, culturally, firstborn means the preeminent one, the one who gets the inheritance. Hebrews 1.6 calls Jesus the firstborn. Boom. He's the most preeminent one. Colossians 1 refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. And then Colossians 1 and Revelation 1 refer to Jesus as the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is preeminent in all things. Romans 8 teaches us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus gets the inheritance. Jesus is the preeminent one. But collectively, because we're in covenant with God through Jesus, God refers to his people as firstborn. Think back to Exodus 4. Israel is my firstborn son. Okay. So as a group, collectively, they're referred to as firstborn son. But did you know that as Christians, we are considered firstborn son? Think of Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to Jesus. We are the firstborn. We share in the inheritance. And so this reminder that we have been redeemed by Jesus is a reminder that we share in the inheritance of Jesus. You aren't an afterthought to God. You're his pride and joy and worth spilling the blood of his son for. But then he sets up this reminder for us. Because he is the master teacher. And he knows that we need more than just the spoken word. We need tangible expressions. That's the way humans are. And so he has given us this meal as a perpetual reminder of what had to happen for us to be saved. Body had to be broke. Blood had to be spilled. And Jesus gladly did it for us. So we could have our sins forgiven. And so we partake of this meal, remembering, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We remember him and his sacrifice and his promise and his covenant when we partake of this. God does not want you going through life, facing your problems, ever for a moment thinking that he's forgotten about you, or that you're a second afterthought. You were worth redeeming. And he wants you to remember the price of your redemption so that you will be inspired to tell the story to your own children and your children's children and that you will celebrate the greatness of God wherever you are. So, we no longer have to consecrate firstborn. Because the firstborn has been consecrated. That's Jesus, and then by extension, all who by faith are in Christ. 
So when we baptize someone, we're noting their inclusion in the people of God. And by being in the people of God, they're invited by faith to partake. Brothers and sisters, remember that your salvation was costly. Grace is free, but the grace that saves also empowers you to live the life for which God has called you. So walk in obedience. Walk in light of God's redemption. He's purchased you at a price. You are not your own, so glorify God in your body. Let's pray.